As you're being seated, I'll pray. God, we give you thanks, and we come before you as mortal, frail, feeble human beings, and we rely upon your peace, upon your grace, and your mercy. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you give us wisdom, you give us clarity to understand, and a heart for one another. In this I pray, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Heath, and I am also part of the team here. Um, I really like this. I'm, it feels like we're all new and, 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 and newcomers, so welcome. Well, let's all welcome each other, so it's really cool to be here. You have not uh, seen me for a few weeks. Uh, some of you may not even know me. Um, I left a couple weeks ago as just an old man, but I've returned as a grandfather. My, yeah. As you can tell, it's my first grandbaby, so... To my daughter and my son-in-law was born Piper June Watts, so I was, spent a couple weeks in Winnipeg. It was really fun. Um, it is really a blessing to be able to continue in our series in the Psalms. Um, I love the Psalms. Uh, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I love and I long to connect with God through the Psalms, in contemplation, in worship, in prayer. And we can do this because the Psalms, in and of themselves, they contain a whole range of human emotions. We all have our favorites, don't we? Now, for me, during this season of COVID, I have really hung on to a certain Psalm, Psalm 61, and there's a phrase in there that says, Lord, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. And in this season, I have hung on there. See, the Psalms as a whole give us tangible handholds to hold on as we weather the storms of life. Now, I'm older than most of you, as you can tell by my beard, but I have never in my life had anybody come up to me and said, Psalm 39 is my favorite psalm. How many think Psalm 39 is their favorite? Yeah, no, no one here. You know, if we, we've been reading in our Bible study reading program, and if you're, if you're not familiar with that, you can check our website and you can follow along through the rest of the year. But you know, most of us have read Psalm 39 and we kind of skip over it fast to get to Psalm 40 and Psalm 41 where it's like the good things happen there. What we have here in this psalm seems to come more out of the mind of Nietzsche or Kierkegaard than we have in the rest of the psalms. You see, even though that may be the case this morning, this psalm confronts and it portrays something that, that we need to deal with. It, it, it contains emotions that we, as a group, tend to push down, we, we bury, we avoid, and we even try to actively mitigate these feelings. This psalm takes us on a journey into some of the darkest place of, places of our mind and of ourself. This psalm particularly is, a, is, is full of grief. It's an end-of-life lament psalm. And one that speaks of anger and despair. And if it couldn't get any worse, this psalm has like a really weird cliffhanger ending, doesn't it? This psalm, to me, thinking through, how do I describe this? It's like having your favorite Netflix show. And, and you get to a season finale, like maybe three or four seasons in, and the characters are fully orbed and fully developed, and you get to the end, and your favorite character is killed off in the last episode. And then to get any worse, as you're waiting for the next season to come along, they cancel the show and you never find out what happens. That's what this psalm is to many of us. It's raw, it's guttural, and without careful examination this morning, it's somewhat and completely wholly unsatisfactory. Now I laughed internally and externally when I looked at our preaching schedule and I, I saw that I was on the, on the kicker for Psalm 39. It's not that I'm afraid to preach this psalm. 
but rather I have a very complicated history with this psalm. In some of the darkest periods of my life, I have prayed in error as David prayed, Lord, put a muzzle on my mouth. People are unjustly persecuting me, or so I thought, and I'm like, Lord, keep me and contain me from being angry. So this morning, I've had to navigate this week some of the darkest periods of my life to be able to speak to you this morning. So for the rest of us here, we need to look at two distinct things this morning so that we are not crushed by this psalm. We need to understand the venality or the the crookedness of our human perspective. And secondly, we need to understand and be grounded in the certainty of godly hope. So let's go back. Right at the very beginning of Psalm 39, and, and David, the psalmist says, I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. Ooh, that's hard. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me, and I mused, and the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. You can feel the raw tension here, can't you? It's like just oozing from this text. There's a sense of injustice here. There's a sense of of direct persecution by what David calls wicked people. Suffering at the hands of another, a sense of powerlessness in that. And the psalmist, thinking himself righteous, he says, put a muzzle on my mouth so I don't sin. You see, David, in his own power, he tries to contain the sense of injustice, the sense of anger, and it continues to grow and to bubble and to boil within him. To the point of actually, you know, employing a physical device to stop his mouth, a muzzle. See, have you ever, the only way I could describe this, have you ever... For fun, we've all seen the YouTube videos. Have you ever taken a pack of Mentos and stuffed it in a Coke bottle? Yeah, doesn't end well, does it? This, this is what David is dealing with here. He's, he's got a whole pack of Mentos shoved in there and he's trying to contain the pressure. See, I'm sure all of us can relate to this. A sense of personal violation that happens with suffering. Particularly if that suffering is unwarranted or unjust or unfair. But underneath David's particular struggle here, there is a common human condition that hits home to every single one of us. The seemingly arbitrary nature of suffering while others prosper. Why do I suffer when somebody else doesn't? This this haunts us. And this is the frustration and the tension that Psalm 39 illuminates. David struggles here to contain his complaint. He's like, he he wants to lament and cry out, oh, why me, Lord, why me? And and whine and snivel about it. He says, I've all done all the right things. I deserve to prosper. They deserve to suffer and die. This is the common human condition that this psalm exposes. So I was in a shop. I live near Commercial Drive, and I was in a shop a month or so ago. It's a shop that I visit regularly. And the owner there is this most amazing woman. She's friendly, she's warm, she's engaging. And and she somehow found out that my daughter was pregnant. And so I come in there and she is so excited and she's enjoying. And I'm like, this is even weird, like even for you. And it's like, okay, I get my stuff and I go. A couple weeks later, I go back. I said, hey, how's it going? Expecting the same level of return. And she bursts into tears in a very unprofessional way. I'm like, are you okay? 
I wanted to reach across the plexiglass counter and take her into my arms and just hold her because I knew she was experiencing something significant. She says, Heath, when I found out your daughter was pregnant, every part of my being wanted to tell you that I am pregnant too. I was excited for you because in your excitement, I was excited for myself. But yesterday I found out that I lost the baby. Oh, let me tell you, Christ City, my heart melted. My heart melted. But in her eyes, I saw questions. Not of malicious or of spiteful intent, but I saw the question in her eyes of longing and understanding like, why did your grandbaby survive and mine didn't? Why me, not you? Was it something that I did? Why am I being punished? Last week, I'm talking to two of my oldest friends, people I've known since I was like three. Yeah, we're old. And we get chatting about marriage, about life, and we've all got adult kids. And my friend, who currently has a child in jail for murder, he looks at me and he says, Heath, our kids, man, they certainly chose different paths, didn't they? And as he's fighting back tears, I see in his eyes the question, why do I suffer this shame? Why do I, when I go to church, I have people look at me weird? Why do I have to have this agony and not you? Now, a few days ago, I dialogued with a friend of mine. He explained to me the heartache and the wreckage of a marriage that ended in divorce after 20 plus years. The unspoken silence as he looked at me in the eyes was, why did my marriage fail? Why am I alone and not you, Heath? Now, some of us have been passed over for promotions. We've had our reputation slanders. Others have succeeded and where others have failed. And, and some people are just rocketing in this time. Some have lost jobs Will you have, will you have not prospered. Some have purchased houses while others of us have been evicted. Some of us desire relationship, yet people are planning weddings around us. We have, some of us have severe health issues while other people seem to be the picture of perfect health and you wonder why. And the list goes on and on and on. There is no end to this disappointment and there is no end to this suffering. So what we do is we try to contain that within ourselves and we, and, and we somehow try to stuff it down and, and we end up in our anger and in our despair and we just don't want to whine and snivel about it. So what do we do? We muscle our mouth and we stuff it down deep so it doesn't escape. See, all of us, we look at these things at the, and we look at these things in the deepest part of ourselves and we look to the world and we compare ourselves to others. We think our worth is merited on it rather. I think our worth is rather measured on our merit, on the things we do, and we ascribe value and success to those things. And when we suffer, particularly in places that we are circumstantial and we seem unjust, it leads to anger. And as we soon shall see, if unchecked, it leads to despair and depression. You and I, just like the psalmist, wonder why me? I've done all the right things. I go to church. I give to charity, I volunteer, I'm a righteous individual. Why do I suffer? Why do I suffer, particularly when the wicked prosper? So we muzzle ourselves in, in our suffering by working harder, by trying uh, better things, working longer, thinking that somehow this will soothe this internal pain. 
Christ City, this is a common human condition. And this is what this psalm is experiencing here, and this is why we want to pass over it as quick as we can. At its source is a corrupt human perspective. We think that we are the center of our own fate. We think that due to our actions, we somehow deserve the good life. Our our actions merit success. Stoic philosopher and Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius once said, to live a good life, we have the potential for it if we learn to be indifferent to what makes no difference. This is what David the psalmist tried to do while endeavoring to remain silent by muzzling himself. As if coping, as if it's a coping mechanism, he tried to be indifferent to the particular suffering that he was dealing with here. By his own hand, he wanted to eke out vengeance and justice. How'd that work for him? You see, in the psalm, it didn't work too well. This philosophy failed him. This is the hard thing that this psalm exposes. exposes it exposes, rather, where we are really at. It exposes our deepest longing, our nature of coping mechanisms that we have, and it confronts our attempts to be, as Marcus Aurelius says, indifferent to the other things that are hard. If left unchecked, this leads to despair, not the good life. See, in our city, we do the same thing. To counteract bad luck, to counteract suffering, we are told that all we have to do is manifest our own happiness, don't we? You know, and voila, we will succeed if we manifest it in and of ourselves. There are whole books and genres written about this. Christ City, really, this thinking is Marcus Aurelius 2.0. It's the dead end of Stoicism. So when the psalmist does finally break his silence here, what does he do? When the mentos explode, what does he say? What does he say? You know, I, I would think that he would go to like Psalm 53 or Psalm 3 in, in verse, Psalm 3 verse 7 where he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you will break the teeth of the wicked. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed to break the teeth of my enemies. Maybe it's just me. But what does the psalmist say? What does he say? Instead he goes in verse 4 of 39, he says, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. His anger is spent and is internalized as nihilistic despair. Everything is meaningless to him. Where Marcus Aurelius's solution is to be indifferent, that's essentially head in the sand, David, David's solution here is to lament. Lament at the frailty and fleeting nature of humanity and our endeavors and our success and our wealth. But it's in this despair that we see David beginning to open up and to acknowledge his error and of his perspective. He turns from himself and asks God, when he says, oh Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. He proclaims his humanity, his frailty, his desire to heap up wealth and the security that is really in nothing. He can't manifest the reality that he desires, so he turns to God. He acknowledges the futility of his life and in this he states that I am not sovereign, but oh God, you are. You are. 
Now, this statement about the fleeting nature of humanity, (laughs) it reveals that David had misplaced his perspective. He was not the center of his own fate. His actions, his hard work, his success as a king, as a conqueror, his merit was not what guaranteed his prosperity. His merit and success was not a protection from suffering. The good life is not acquired with wealth that others will enjoy. The good life is not indifference to suffering. The good life does not help us survive in indifference. David confesses that he is entirely, completely, 100% dependent on God. And it's in this understanding and this minuteness of humanity in the presence of a huge and sovereign God who created the world and everything in it that recalibrates his perspective on suffering. See, the helplessness of our situation as humans to mitigate our own suffering is depressing and hard for us as modern readers and hearers to understand, isn't it? We do not like the idea that our fate that our purpose, that our reality is dependent on a God. This is, in fact, the antithesis of our culture's structure and DNA. We want to manifest our own reality. Happiness and success, it comes internally and by being indifferent to negativity. Just this morning, I'm walking out, I'm talking to a friend of mine who had a mental break because his dad died, and he is at loss. Like, what do I do, Heath? What do I do? See, Psalm 39 highlights the flaw in this thinking, in the context of struggle with suffering. See, Christ City, though, without this next point, this truth would be suffocating. The result would heap depression upon our despair, and it would not be no good news at all, and it would lead to nihilistic you know, thoughts and thinking. This is why we need to be grounded in the hope that is our point number two. We need to have a certainty and our hope in God. Turn with me to the second half of the psalm. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? Ah, my hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of a fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me, I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. And then the surprise ending. Look away from me. Look away from me that I might smile again before I depart and am no more. David grounds his existential angst in lament. And he places his hope on the very promises of God himself. He acknowledges that in his sufferings, it's due to sin. And he petitions to God. And by his namesake, by God's namesake, he petitions and says, deliver me from my sin. He says, take away the unjust suffering, the scorn of my enemies. He says, take away punishment for sin. Hear my prayer, he says. Listen to my cry, he cries out. And he says, do not withhold peace and security at my tears of my suffering and my sorrow. And what does he ground all this hope in? David reminds himself, and he reminds God, that like his forefathers, 
David was God's chosen son. A chosen people. A people called by God, and therefore, he has a place of protection. He has a place of security, not a place of futility. Not a place of meaninglessness, but rather one of value and love and acceptance. David sees sees his dire situation, and he reminds God of his, of his past promises and his faithfulness. And from that, and from that, he can stand in his suffering and resolutely look forward in hope that God would be true to his word as he has done in the past, that he would restore his people and end their suffering. His, his, his focus, his fortunes were based on the peace of God rather than his merit. The psalmist reminds God, quite literally, that he is a sojourner, he is an exile, he has hitched hitched himself to God because that is where he's placed his trust and that's where he's placed his future on the identity of an infinite God. His hope is that he has a better future, a better inheritance, a greater identity in God rather than manifesting it himself. David calls upon the character of God to remove his suffering because even though mankind is a vapor, a mist, a mere breath, mankind is made significant because he is a sojourner, accepted and chosen, loved by God. Now, if you're paying attention here, there is one glaring issue that the psalmist uh, highlights that we have yet to discuss. David seems to indicate here (laughs) that all suffering is a result of sin. Now, if we're not careful, and if we paint everything in this light, we could get the wrong picture and simply state that, hey, you get what you deserve. And by default, indicating that way, your suffering, if you're suffering, all suffering is in your hands. Essentially, what it does is it puts it back on us and our stoicism. So therefore, to solve this issue, we said, like, okay, I have to guess I have to repent of my sin because I'm suffering and I don't know how to deal with this. Uh, I don't think this is what this text is saying. You see, I grew up in circles that taught this and it was crushing and depressing. You see, if looked the wrong way, this understanding of sin and suffering leads to condemnation rather than hope. Now, in discussing here, David, the the absolute nature and frailty and the mere breathness of man, if I could say it that way, in the face of God. Similarly, the psalmist addresses the absolute nature of sin. In the face of God, he addresses the holistic nature of sin. See, in a very real way, all suffering is a result of sin. All suffering is a result of sin, but... Not all of your current suffering is a result of your sin. As I addressed a few weeks back, sometimes we get what others deserve. And that's the nature and the hard thing about suffering. Psalm 39 confronts us with this absolute holiness of God and in contrast with the totality and holistic nature of our sin. And it brings us to the realization of a complete reliance on God. He is huge. He is holy and he is amazing. And he also provides security, forgiveness, and an end to our suffering. And the psalm then ends anticlimactically with a a plea from God to remove his face from the psalmist so he can actually smile and die in peace. Now, this may be the end of this psalm, 
But it is not the end of the story. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. This is dubbed the chapter of faith in the New Testament. And it's a list of Old Testament person after Old Testament person after Old Testament person who, like David, places their faith and hope in God and they live their lives in the promise of this salvation. They live their life with the promise of freedom from sin. And what David acutely describes for us here in Psalm 39, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says in chapter 11, verse 30, starting at verse 32, it says, What more shall I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness. Now, we like that, right? They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to the flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. This is the part we have a harder time with. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. Ooh, and the list gets worse. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, all of whom the world was not worthy. Ooh, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And then in 39, he says, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised to them. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, if you go back up to verse 13 of chapter 11, it says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. This is the same language that David uses. Christ said he, in a very real way, we are strangers and aliens. We are sojourners just like David. And he, but he died in the faith of a promise, unfulfilled in his lifetime. David saw from afar, uh, through a mirror darkly clouded, he saw from afar what we have been given clearly to see. For us living thousands of years beyond the events that caused David to pen this psalm, we too, we too can deal with our suffering. We can do as the psalmist and look back to what God has promised, what he's done, and have confidence in the face of injustice, in the face of sin, in the face of our frailty and our mortality rightly, and orient our hope in the God who will act, the God who has acted. When the author of Hebrews says in 1140, he says, since God has provided something better for us, he is referring to God himself acting in history. What David cried out for as a promise, a hope, we see something tangible. We see something tangible, a powerful act of rescue that happened in our past. Our hope, like David's, is in the fact of the God who knows our frailty and who knows our finiteness. In mercy, he ascribes value to us greater than our humblest state as humans deserve. And what does he do? He sends his son. He sends his son to become one of us. That overwhelms me. In our existential despair, 
and helplessness. Jesus, the one who was not a mere breath. Jesus, who was not a shadow. Jesus, who was not finite, a created thing. Jesus became as such. Born like we were. The infinite became as us, finite, in the mess and the pain and the suffering of childbirth. This same Jesus, he takes all of our hostility, all of the penalty to sin. He takes it on himself, and what is it? He didn't cry out, ah, not me, not me. No, he was silent. He was mute. He was mute when in our anger we cry out and whine. This Jesus, who is sinless, he takes all the rebukes for our sin that we defiantly try to hide. Jesus suffers as one rejected by the very people who he came to help and alleviate their suffering. Jesus manifests peace for us by dying on the cross. He suffers ultimately so we do not have to. See, in Jesus, we do not have the same ending that David does in Psalm 39. On the cross, God himself looks away from his son so that we can not only be sojourners and exiles, but we can be looked upon as family, as children of God. We do not depart as a finite being. No, not at all. Through Jesus and his resurrection, we have an infinite future in God. The finite becomes infinite. Christ City, this is the good news that the psalmist could only hope for, look for, and point to. So what do we do, Christ City, with our present suffering? Because our suffering is real, and it's horrible, and there is so much injustice. What do we do? What do we do? Well, like David, we too look forward in faith. We look forward in hope to the one God who actually acted in the past through Jesus and he sees our present sufferings and he says, yes, I will act in the future because I am who I am and I will do what I've promised. Turn with me to Romans chapter eight, starting at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then down to 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if this is true, who can be against us? See our frailty? Oh, these are secure words of promise, Christ city. Verse 32, it says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that's just a fancy word for, for suffering and persecution. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's suffering. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christ City, we deal with our present sufferings in the light of this reality, secure in the love of God that cannot be taken away, regardless of what happens to us. We have certainty in our suffering because God is faithful to his word. What he has promised, he will do again. Christ City, as we close, let the jarring and uncomfortable nature of this psalm give you clarity this morning. May it compel you to worship, to worship the God of David, to worship the God who, who makes finite things of this world valuable, loved, and infinite through his son. This morning, may you realize the futile nature of your desires and your proclivity to try and solve it on your own. May you fall on your face in confession like David and repentance and say, oh Lord, I'm finite, but my hope is in you. May you be compelled this morning to worship the infinite God who became finite to make you his own. Let's pray. Oh God, we stand in awe of you. Words cannot articulate how amazing you are. Words cannot convey the sense of love that you have given to us. Lord, you are not capricious. You are not, you know, giving us what we deserve, but Lord, you graciously love us and has sent your son to actually deal with our stuff. So Lord, we stand in awe of you and we humbly ask for your forgiveness. We surrender our sufferings to you and rely on the words that you have penned through your servant Paul. So in this we pray, by Jesus Christ, who is at your right hand, who intercedes for us, amen.